Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We are the Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every week to promote and defend public education. That's education that's public in purpose, outcome, access and accountability. And uh, we've got a big program for you today, so let's go straight into it. Andy's got an AEU press release. Over to you, Andy. Thanks. Disappointing lack of progress on school funding. Governments will make little or no progress towards ending the underfunding of public schools in 2024, despite being warned by their own expert panel that it is urgent and critical, and the first step towards ensuring all students receive the support they need. It has been revealed that extended bilateral agreements between the Albanese government and each state and territory government were signed without publicity in November and December. The existing agreements were extended for the 2024 school year, with new ones due to be negotiated this year that will determine the long-term funding of every school from 2025. AEU Federal President Karina Haythorpe said it was deeply disappointing that there would be no change in 2024 to the unacceptable position that only 1.3% of public schools across Australia are funded to the schooling resource standard, the minimum level governments agreed a decade ago was acquired. At the end of October, all governments were told by the expert panel they established that fully funding public schools was urgent and a critical prerequisite for improving student learning and well-being, she said. Yet, only weeks later, education ministers signed agreements for 2024 that deliver no increase in the Commonwealth share of the SRS and either no increase in the state and territory shares or very small increases. The challenges facing schools are too great and the cost of inaction too high for governments to continue to fail on funding. Only the 1.3% of public schools in the ACT are fully funded, and New South Wales is the only state with a commitment to actually get public schools to 100% of the SRS by 2029. By contrast, the extended agreements ensure that private schools in every state and the ACT will be funded at or above 100% of their SRS in 2024. The Prime Minister promised to work with state and territory governments to deliver full funding of public schools. He must deliver on that commitment this year and ensure all public schools are funded at 100% of the SRS by 2028 at the latest. As the expert panel found, funding gaps are fueling unacceptable achievement gaps between students from different backgrounds and locations. Secondary students from disadvantaged backgrounds are six times more likely to be low performers than those from advantaged backgrounds. Declining student mental health and well-being is a major source of concern and there are acute teacher shortages across the country caused by unsustainable workloads. We don't have a level playing field in education that ensures every child gets every opportunity to succeed. Fixing that starts with funding. Teachers in public schools are doing an amazing job, but there aren't enough of them and their workloads are unsustainable. The right funding will mean more one-on-one support for students with complex needs, small group tutoring for those at risk of falling behind, more trained counsellors and education support staff. In the agreement struck this year, the Albanese government must lift its contribution from 20 to 25% of the SRS for all states and lift it to 40% for the NT, where student disadvantage is greatest. Ms Haythorpe said that during the negotiations over new bilateral agreements this year, the Albanese government must also stop state and territory governments artificially inflating the share of funding they are contributing to schools by including non-school spending. Accounting tricks in the current agreements artificially inflate funding for public schools in every state and the NT by 4%. That creates a $2 billion a year gap between what governments claim they are spending on public schools and what they are actually spending, she said. New bilateral agreements this year must deliver full, not fake, funding for public schools. Yes, indeed, they must. And back to you. Thanks, Andy. 
So now we've got an article from The Age from the 27th of January titled The Accounting Tricks Shortchanging Public Schools Billions of Dollars Every Year. So coalition-era loopholes led the states to underfund public schools, leaving them a long way off Gonski minimum standards, and Victoria is one of the worst. Victorian public schools were shortchanged more than $1.7 billion last year under little-known loopholes and accounting tricks that economists warn are still allowing the states to underfund public schools. The Commonwealth heads into critical negotiations with the states and territories for new funding deals this year, and Federal Education Minister Jason Clare has vowed to fix the funding gap that has left almost all the nation's public schools underfunded and most of its private schools overfunded. The Gonski reforms of more than a decade ago were supposed to fund schools according to need, but a coalition-era watering down of the agreements mean the states, which cover the majority of public school costs, only have to show they are on the path to eventually reaching 95% of the minimum agreed resourcing requirement, known as the SRS, the Schooling Resource Standard. The states, including Victoria, have been calling on the Commonwealth to fill the missing 5% of that money. But an analysis by this masthead, independent experts and the Australian Education Union reveals the funding shortfall is actually closer to 15% in many jurisdictions, except the ACT, which already fully funds public schools. In Victoria, the education state, the funding gap will be almost 14% this year, bigger than New South Wales but less than the Northern Territory. That's about $1.5 billion after after the $1.7 billion shortfall in 2023. In Australia, the states are meant to cover 80% of public school funding and 20% of Catholic and private schools. These responsibilities are reversed for the Commonwealth, which funds 80% of the non-government sector, but is capped at funding only 20% for public schools. The federal government is now paying that 20% and has flagged increasing it further if the states step up too. But economists say Claire must also close a key loophole that allows states to claim 4% of their share of public school funding in capital depreciation and non-school spending. The clause means that last year all states and territories except the ACT collectively claimed they spent $2 billion that never actually reached classrooms. Gonski was meant to be real money for real schools, said the education economist Adam Roris, who helped the government devise the minimum standard requirements and analysed funding projections as part of independent work commissioned by the AEU. This is an accounting trick. It's a rort, and it only applies to public schools, not the privates, he said. The SRS is not a lofty aspiration, it's the bare minimum needed, calculated to get at least 80% of students above the minimum standard for NAPLAN testing, and we're still nowhere close. Meanwhile, Roris said private school funding continued to grow in a way never intended by Gonski, overfunded by hundreds of millions of dollars a year until at least 2029. 
Clare did not answer questions on whether he would scrap the 4% allowance for states or introduce tougher accountability on their funding pledges, as Labor previously committed to do while in opposition. But he stressed he was committed to the full 100% funding standard. We have to fix the funding gap, he said. Adding short-term, extra resources should be targeted to things that help children who will fall behind catch up, such as tutoring support. AEU Federal President Corinna Haythorpe said that under the 4% loophole, jurisdictions could claim everything from regulatory agencies, early learning and even private school buses as part of their school funding. The accountability has been stripped out of these deals and this federal government has a historic moment to fix it, she said. My nephew's about to start school. Will he go through another decade of underfunding? Last month, a major report commissioned by the federal government called for public schools to be fully funded urgently as the achievement gap between the richest and poorest students grows and inequality becomes entrenched in the school system. But most politicians have shied away from committing to a timeline. So far, New South Wales has vowed to fully fund public schools by 2029 under the next deal with the Commonwealth. In Victoria, where a tight budget looms ahead this this May, a Department of Education spokeswoman said that since coming to power just under a decade ago, the Labor government had invested $14.9 billion in school infrastructure that was not included in SRS figures and had ramped up its spending per student more than other states. Victoria continued to advocate for more Commonwealth spending on public schools, she said, as all students, no matter their circumstances, deserve the best start in life. Deakin University researcher Dr Emma Rowe has been surveying school principals across the country and says the divide between the school sectors is staggering. While you have one elite private school importing special limestone to build a literal castle, public principals across the board talk about the struggle with their budgets, she said. They are fighting for absolutely everything, putting in lengthy applications for basics like heaters and air conditioning, working toilets. Some primary schools don't have playgrounds. Others hold fates and fundraisers to crowdsource extra funds. Rowe said one principal had been applying for five years to fix classroom windows that didn't open or would slam shut suddenly, which could take off a little kid's fingers. Another to fix a leaking roof, creating mould. Public schools are being starved of money. That's why parents are going private. Education expert Matthew Sinclair agreed that Australia is unique on the world stage for the scale of its funding of private schools. Overseas, government support for private schools is very limited and usually tied to the fees schools charge parents. Here, it's unregulated, Rose said. Fees are going up faster than house prices. Sinclair said that there's no clear rationale to Australia's funding split that leaves the majority of public school funding to the states, which have less revenue-raising power than the Commonwealth. Why couldn't it be 50-50 for all schools? I think if it was better balanced, we'd be in a much better position, he said, flagging the idea of a national agency to dole out money based on need. But the politics of entitlement, the lobby groups of the private and the Catholic sector keep trumping the reality of need for our students. Very interesting indeed. Okay, we're going to have a quick break and we'll be right back with you here on 3CR Community Radio. 
it's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. 3CR is radical radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools program here on 3CR. And now I'm going to pass you over to Sorrel, who's got a very interesting article about why we should ban private schools in Australia. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks. This article is by Elizabeth Farrelly and was written for the Saturday paper. It's entitled, Why Australia Should Ban Private Schools. The Finnish education system offers a model by which to fix Australia's broken school system. But first, we need to ban private schools. Had I one wish for Australia, it would be this. Ban private schools. Not because they're bad as schools, but because they're bad for the culture. Increasingly, our winner-takes-all school system is reducing our culture to a rabble of tribalism, competition, cruelty, derision and class-based resentment. The divisions are stark. Right now in Australia, rich kids are shepherded through their school days by squadrons of well-paid nannies, librarians, tutors, coaches and mentors, being shuttled from plush car to air-conditioned ceramics and drama studios to manicured sports fields. Poor kids must contend with leaking roofs, broken toilets and inadequate Wi-Fi. Increasingly, to our shame, they arrive at school unfed. These differences are far more dramatic than half a century ago. Then, Australian equality was roughly on par with that of Finland. Now, we could hardly be more different. After Finland banned private schools in the 1970s, its wealth and education excellence soared, whilst its equality levels have remained steady. In Australia, by contrast, inequality has soared. Wealth, too, has grown, but sits in ever fewer hands. Inexorably, our education system reflects and exacerbates this imbalance, further widening the gap. The Finnish system, often dubbed the Finnish miracle, is called pedoskulu, or basic schooling, embodying a commitment to excellent schooling for all, 
it has generated an advanced and equitable society based on universal education. Finnish policymaker and educator Professor Parsi Salberg was instrumental in implementing Pedaskulu. So when he says Australian public education is in crisis because of our failure to recognise that equity and excellence are inseparable, we should probably listen. Salberg has written much on the nuts and bolts of this miracle, including his award-winning book, Finnish Lessons. He contrasts the effects of Pedaskulu with those of the global education reform movement, GERM, which, since the 1980s, has shaped education orthodoxy across the United States, Britain, Canada and Australia. GERM promotes interschooling competitiveness, standardised learning, a focus on literacy and numeracy, text-based accountability and market choice as a guarantor of excellence. Pedaskulu does not does almost the opposite. Designed to free a child's learning potential from their background, it favours inter-school collaboration, personalised learning, trust-based responsibility, and a focus on whole child learning and well-being. Even more disturbing than the wealth-based chasm that results from germ is our widespread acceptance of this gap as somehow natural, even deserved. It turns parenting into a frantic peddling exercise focused on securing their offspring's place at the apex of this cruel and wasteful system. Not to make scholars of them, but to see them network with the bankers and hedge fund managers of the future. Such choice creates a system guaranteed to entrench social division, creaming off the most advantaged kids into schools with palatial facilities. We pour billions of public dollars into further advantaging them, all while underfunding public schools that already struggle for basic amenities. Embodying a commitment to excellent schooling for all, Pedoskulu has generated an advanced and equitable society based on universal education. It's almost like we want to ensure that one in six Australian children who currently live in poverty will go on to lifelong disadvantage, as if we want our cities to become what one French architect calls ghettos of rich people. Parents, trapped on this politically convenient treadmill, are blinded to education's most important role, culture building. True, individual betterment matters. Your child, any child, will have a better life if properly educated. Fairness matters too. Yet both arguments presume the main reason for schooling is to get ahead. In fact, that's very partial. Education's paramount role is to build a fertile, resilient and trusting culture, one that can nourish us all. If this sounds utopian, that just shows how far down the pole of ruthless competition we've allowed ourselves to slip. The Finnish trajectory is equally dramatic but directionally opposite. In the 1960s, Finland had an orthodox and rather dull education system. Six or seven years of basic schooling streamed children into either academic grammar schools or civic high schools, both public and private. The core beliefs, writes Salberg, was that a child's potential was principally determined at home. Yet Finnish education culture was distinguished by two things. One was a deep cultural reverence for teaching, which was seen as a noble profession on par with medicine. 
Second was Finland's constitutional protection of education as a basic human right. These characteristics paved the way for the changes that followed. By the 1980s, Finnish 10-year-olds were amongst the best readers in the world, and it went upwards from there. Starting with a 1963 parliamentary decision, the Finnish government gradually introduced Pedaskulu. They banned private schools and invested everything in public school system excellence. They shrank the school day, reduced the homework, increased play, extended holidays, paid teachers better, educated them more highly, and above all, trusted them. They ended external ranking exams and formal school inspections and instead encouraged teachers and schools to exercise their professional judgment. In Petoskulu, nine years of schooling is provided in free, comprehensive schools. Kids are locally assigned, although parents can apply for a particular school out of the area. Preschooling is generally offered by local government and schooling proper begins when a child turns seven. There is no streaming. The first six years are usually taught by the class teacher with subject specialist teachers introduced through the final three years. The school year compromises 190 days, which typically run from 9am to 2pm with a mandatory 15-minute break every hour. After 2pm, students are generally free. Homework is deliberately minimised and play is valued. Within a couple of decades, Finland soared from a position of mediocrity in international education rankings to the top. Admittedly, since then, it has dropped back a place or two, but it still ranks as one of the happiest, wealthiest and most equal and most educated countries on earth. Achievement levels within schools vary as greatly as anywhere, for children are not equal. Yet variation between schools is the lowest of any country. Hence to Salberg's three Finnish paradoxes. Teach less, learn more. Test less, learn more. And play more, learn more. Salberg writes that adages such as less is more and small is beautiful are culturally commonplace in Finland. As an education analogue, he cites revered Finnish architect Alvar Alto, saying, We should work for simple, good, undecorated things, which are in harmony with the human being and organically suited to the little man in the street. Perhaps it is no surprise that, over their nine years, Finnish students engage in just over 6,000 instruction hours, whilst the number for Australian students is almost twice that, 11,000 hours per student. Pedaskulu cultivates general arts education, offers support to immigrants and emphasises special education. By the time Finnish kids reach 16, this special education has assisted almost half of them. In other words, special needs are no longer special, but rather a form of customised education. As a result, in international tests, Finnish 15-year-olds outperform most of the world. Japan is also at the top, but scores badly in happiness measures. Finland excels in both. Perhaps the most remarkable aspect of Pedaskulu, however, is its reverence for teachers. Finnish teachers teach less than most, about four lessons daily, and therefore have more time for creative planning. Lower secondary teachers in Finland work a 33.3-hour week, compared with their Australian counterparts, 
44.8 hours. School teachers are required to have a subject-based higher degree, and the selection process is hugely competitive, assessing aptitude and personality as well as academic excellence. In 2008, a survey revealed that teachers were amongst Finn's most desirable professions for a spouse. Having created excellent teachers, the system does not subject either teacher or student to evaluative testing, but gives teachers and schools great autonomy to to exercise professional judgment and to do what they are trained to do, teach. In Australia, on the other hand, 16 years of NAPLAN shows our basic skills are going backwards. One in three year three students is failing expectations. Almost 100,000 year nine students fall short on numeracy, and most teachers have inadequate resources. Worse, the best schools are still in the best areas. Surprise! Salberg migrated to Australia in 2018, joining the Gonski Institute before moving to the University of Melbourne. Echoes of Salberg can be heard in many Gonski quotes, such as, the underlying talents and abilities of students are not distributed differently among children from different socioeconomic status, ethnic or language backgrounds, or according to where they live or go to school. This commitment to Australia, notwithstanding his stringent critique of our broken school system, suggests we should react not defensively, but with elation. For what Salberg offers, with a scholarly open hand, is hope. To grasp this hope for our children's future, we must first ban private schools. Excellent article there. Back over to you. Thank you for that, Sorrel. And now we'll have another break here on 3CR. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Panoply, panorama... Panpipe? Pansy? Aha! Pansexual! Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Welcome back. You are listening to The Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools program here on 3CR. And now I'm going to pass you over to Andy with some with a disturbing article about how, how we in Australia passively abuse 
disadvantaged students in our education system. Over to you, Andy. Thanks. Australia continues to passively abuse disadvantaged students. The recent Senate interim report on the issue of increasing disruption in Australian school classrooms has attracted the usual short-term media indignation, followed by the ever-present indifference from our education leaders and politicians. This is not the first time there is an acknowledgement that severely disruptive kids exist. Statistics such as almost a quarter of teachers feel unsafe at work, principals reporting intimidation at an extreme rate, physical violence and bullying among students is twice the OECD average. This increase in the expression of dysfunctional behaviour is not new. There is no other workplace where these statistics would be tolerated and any application of the WHS legislation would have them shut down and their employers fined. What is not acknowledged but has been demonstrated is the damaging effect the behaviour of these students has on the learning of their classmates. When leadership understands this, yet fails to deal with it, this knowingly constitutes abuse. However, it would be naive to think this problem is not being addressed in the style that would please devotees of neoliberalism. Rich families can buy their way out of this problem. Schools no longer consist of a very few expensive user-pays private schools, a smattering of poor parish schools, and the vast majority of kids attending their local public school. What is claimed we have now is a marketplace where parents get choice. This is the legacy of Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister who is unaware of the damage she has inflicted on public schools. Although he had already started with successive coalition governments over funding private schools, Gillard's belief in the principle of choice condemned schools in low socio-economic areas into becoming the dumping ground of these disruptive and highly damaged children. The concepts notoriously known as meritocracy, grit, freedom and choice are used by those with social and economic advantage to ease their conscience with their supposition that the only reason others do not share their privilege is because they don't try hard enough. Of course, they all point to outliers who succeed despite coming from the other side of the tracks, but these are exceptions. Choice is a concept that is the root cause of our fractured school systems. The constraints such as socioeconomic background, cultural influences and access to opportunities that apply to individuals equally applies to schools. Both federal and state Labor governments face the problem of bringing equity into the schools and much has been written about the unfair distribution of resources and rightly so. But there is no discussion about the inequity pointed out by the Senate report. The loss of learning opportunities for children who share a classroom with one or more dysfunctional children is well documented and easy to understand. Our attention is always focused on what is the most significant activity happening at the time. When a teacher is explaining the significance of Hamlet's soliloquy and another student is throwing a chair, a child's focus will be on the chair. Understanding Hamlet is not to be. Dysfunctional behaviour can have many causes. Disorders such as autism, attention deficit disorder, psychosis, etc. are the result of neurodivergence. That is, there is a biological basis for the behaviour. And these are, in a broad sense, equally distributed across socioeconomic boundaries. But the most prevalent cause of severe disruptive behaviour is early childhood post-traumatic stress, PTSD, the direct result of childhood abuse perpetrated by adults. Investigations into the prevalence of this disability puts the range from between 1% and 11% of the total population. However, the social distribution of childhood PTSD is not in dispute. By far, the vast majority of sufferers, up to 26%, come from low socioeconomic areas. Based on this statistic, in a classroom of, say, 30 students, up to 8 of these damaged kids would be expected in each classroom. 
For the teacher and the other class members, learning is replaced with survival. To exacerbate this problem, many schools organise their classrooms on academic results, and obviously those with debilitating mental illness congregate in the lowest class along with those with learning difficulties. This is not a situation parents living in the catchment of such schools want for their children, and those with the resources will seek to move them out. Gillard's permission to allow students to enrol in schools out of area and our taxes pay for the transport offered one escape route. Other public schools gratefully accepted the good kids but refused enrolment of those damaged ones. However, there were still some dysfunctional kids so those who transferred were not completely free of disruption. Free market thinkers, masquerading as religious schools, saw this as an opportunity to create a product attractive to those parents who wanted to avoid this problem they guarantee that their schools would not tolerate such kids. The then state and federal coalition governments who relish exclusivity, especially from the deplorables, unashamedly financed the rise of relatively cheap, private and mostly faith-based schools giving the customers what they want, a guarantee that their children would never share a class with severe disruptive behaviours. Well-informed parents with the financial resources now send their children to the ever-increasing number of these private schools. In my last school, a proud public school, the number of teachers who sent their kids to private schools far outnumbered those who sent their kids to their local public school. I used to listen to them laugh about promising to adopt the required religious values followed at the school, a ritual that neither the parent nor the enrolling school took seriously. This is a business transaction. But I was disappointed that they didn't stay and fight to have our school better funded and supported. Labor is facing a real test they don't even acknowledge. These kids, whose behaviour is the result of early childhood abuse, are condemned to their increasingly residualised comprehensive schools. The parents of these children do not have the resources to take up Gillard's offer of choice. Equity is the provision of resources according to need. And these kids, who have been significantly damaged in an unprotective society, will not only be ignored, they will be condemned to attend classrooms where learning opportunities are almost nil. I'm prepared to take bets that in the new funding agreement, the resources to immediately address this problem and the needs of the will be ignored. After all, it's their fault. They should try harder. Food for thought indeed. And back to you. Thank you for that, Andy. We'll have a quick break and then we'll come back with some more dogs after this. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR. And now we're going to go overseas with Jeff. Thanks. And we're going to start this week, as we often do, with a linked article from the Diana Ravitch blog. This one's from the Network for Public Education from the 25th of January uh, 24, and it's by John Scharf, S-C-H-A-A-F, and it's tax dollars are wasted in states with school vouchers. John Scharf is an attorney and expert on Kentucky political scandals. His comments on the futility of voucher programs were published in the Florida Phoenix. Like salmon swimming home to spawn, he says, lobbyists are again roaming the hallways of the Kentucky state capitol. This year, big-dollar lobbyists representing corporate-run private schools and churches are pushing House Bill 208 to change the state's constitution to allow politicians to throw billions of tax dollars into private and religious schools. The bad news is, other states are trying this risky experiment, 
and it's busting their budgets and turning into welfare for wealthy people and churches. For example, Indiana's government is forcing every taxpayer to pay for private schools and pandering Hoosier politicians are diverting $500 million a year into vouchers. 99% of that voucher money is going to religious schools. So if private school lobbyists in Frankfurt have their way, every time a Kentuckian buys a toaster, a Big Mac or a Ford or a Toyota, a portion of the sales tax will go to church-based schools, which generally pay no taxes and want a public handout to shore up dwindling revenue. Indiana is a tragic example of a state that started a voucher program aimed at low-income families, but now gives vouchers worth about $6,000 per child to families with incomes up to $220,000 a year. Most voucher recipients were already attending private schools before government swooped in and forced taxpayers to cover these costs. Likewise, Florida now offers taxpayer-funded $8,000 private school vouchers to every school-aged kid, regardless of family income. When it was signed into law last year, it was estimated, estimated that Florida's Vouchers for Everybody program would cost between $200 and $700 million a year. All this is in US dollars, of course. However, once this school year started with everybody eligible, the cost exploded and it is now estimated at between $2.8 and $4.2 billion. And about 70% of the new recipients were already attending private schools before vouchers. As a gift and re-election tool from Florida politicians, individual voucher recipients can now spend taxpayer money on instructional materials such as theme park tickets, 55-inch TVs, video game consoles, skateboards, football tables and surfboards. Meanwhile, Florida ranks 48th in teacher pay and has about 12,000 teacher and support staff vacancies in its traditional public schools. Another lobbyist-created disaster is looming in Arizona, where that state's voucher program is estimated to cost taxpayers over $943 million in the current school year, creating a $319 million deficit for the 2024 fiscal year. And more than 53% of all new education spending is going to only 8% of Arizona students. In Arizona and other states where taxpayer vouchers are being spread around like manure on a pig farm, there's minimal accountability or transparency for the use of taxpayer money in private schools. There's little or no auditing of private school finances, testing of students, standards or teachers, or parental rights as there are in public schools. That's because private school lobbyists push through the legislation in those states that creates a shocking transfer of taxpayer money to churches and corporations that operate schools without rules. Many hastily created fly-by-night operations that can reject or dismiss any student they don't want or close without notice, leaving families in the lurch. We know that academic instability, bouncing around between schools, schools closures, are really bad for children, said Josh Cohen, a Michigan State University researcher who studied the impact of vouchers on students. The last four voucher evaluations have shown test score drops from kids who move from public to private schools and are on par with what Hurricane Katrina did to learning rates in New Orleans, and more recently what COVID-19 did to test scores after exams began to resume. The Kentucky Constitution protects taxpayers from the high-risk experiment of taxpayer-funded school vouchers. House Bill 208 would change that and allow politicians to gamble with Kentuckians' hard-earned money. 
That's an interesting article, and it actually just glossed over quite a lot of the states and what's happening as, as the public school system is being bled dry by vampires in the form of private schools uh, fun and well, very well-funded politicians who are taking money from the lobby groups that are providing uh, the money for their re-election. Now we're going to nip across to Britain. And we're going to get got an article by, by the Guardian from the Guardian, which was on the also on the twenty fifth of January twenty four, and this is by Anush Chakelian, uh, and it is called Britain's richest richest ten percent don't think that they're wealthy, and that's disastrous in the fight against inequality. She says, "What does it mean to be wealthy? It is perhaps this question more than any other that haunts British society." The public's definition can be glimpsed in the reaction to Labor's mansion tax idea for properties worth more than £2 million in 2015, or its proposal for a 45 pence tax rate on earnings over £80,000 in 2019. A revolution of polite but pushy, well-to-do Britons and a conservative election victory never seemed to take long to follow. Like expensive Swiss clockwork, it's happening again. At the time of writing, more than 70,000 parents of private school pupils have signed a petition to stop Keir Starmer's plan to charge private schools VAT. Just an aside, Keir Starmer is the leader of the Labor Party in Britain. Tony Perry, an NHS data analyst on a £60,000 salary and leader of the Education Not Taxation, Parents Against Schools Fee VAT campaign, who sends his 10-year-old son to a £21,000 a year school in Berkshire, describes himself as a non-wealthy parent. Go through the comments on the petition and many other others chime in to protest just how wealthy they aren't. In reality, the median salary in the UK before taxes is £34,963. And from simply the school fees perspective, beyond special education needs places, which Labor's VAT charge would exclude, there is no need for anyone in the UK to send their child to a private school. If parents feel so cash-strapped, they should just use our state education system where 93% of pupils in the country are educated. But the fact remains that many of the top 10% of earners, those on £59,000 a year and above, do not feel rich. And that has major societal consequences. First, the feelings of this group matter because they are simply more likely to vote, to trust in political institutions and to influence our laws, as the academics Jerry Mitchell and Marcos Gonzalez Hernando found in their 2023 book about the top 10% uncomfortably off. Second, the nuances in public attitudes towards wealth, salary and class must be understood by our politicians because they make it very difficult for parties to pitch wealth taxes, raise taxes on higher incomes or land a tax on wealthy individuals in public life. And they're also key to understanding something profound about the British psyche. Question Time viewers may remember the case of an irate audience member in 2019 earning above £80,000 a year who assumed he wasn't in the top 5% or even in the top 50%. Since then, I've been fascinated by our perceptions of wealth and have been doing my own research for the New Statesman magazine with the Redfield and Wilton Strategies polling firm on these questions. We've uncovered some stark views. 
60% of those on 80,000 to 100,000 pounds a year believe they are about average on the income scale, for example, and a quarter of Britons paid 100,000 pounds or more identify as working class. But more generally, we have found that no matter where you sit on the scale, you generally tend to underestimate how much you earn compared with the average, and you are more likely to feel your social circle is better off and yourself worse off. This makes particular sense in the case of the top 10%, who are often working in jobs as lawyers, consultants, recruiters and financiers, that expose them to people far richer than themselves. In the scheme of the haves and have-nots and have-yachts, they see themselves as have-not-yachts, Perry voices this very bias in his interview with The Telegraph. Charging VAT won't hurt the the wealthy students attending public schools like Winchester, where Mr Rishi Sunak studied. It will hurt many others, however. Yet perception isn't the only thing at play. There is real inequality high up in the income scale. While certainly not the most egregious economic divide in our country, the top 1% are pulling away from the top 10% at a drastic rate. The uncomfortably off authors reveal that even those in the top 5% earning £82,000 a year and above are much closer to the national median than to the top 1%, £183,000 and above, where wealth is rapidly accumulating. The Labor MP Liam Burns' new book, The Inequality of Wealth, details how the average wealth of an individual in the top 1% of Britain's richest increased 31 times more than that of those those in the bottom 99% between 2010 and 2021. Overall wealth in the UK rose four, £14 trillion pounds in the same period, nearly a quarter of which went up just to the top 1%. However you feel they should spend their money, it's little wonder then that the Tony Perrys of Britain feel as if their lifestyle is slipping away from them. The challenge for politicians aiming for a fairer Britain is to make this section of society care about inequality in general, rather than simply who gets to afford which private school. Uh, good article there, just to highlight the fantasy land that uh, the richest uh, people in the community seems to how they perceive themselves. And also, I just have to say how jealous I am that we only they only have seven percent of their kids in private school and ninety three percent in public schools because we in Australia only have around sixty five percent of our kids in public schools and huge number of them in aspirational private schools, um, all breeding a next generation of conservatives. Anyway, with all that, back to you. Thank you for that, Jeff. Let's have a quick break. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. Call 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. 
Brunswick Secondary State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary great School. Sunshine North Primary They're School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly uh, assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a positive great deal. relationships with each other, with teachers, and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast, and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. And now we're coming to the end of the program. Uh, we've got some good news stories at the end. Uh, first, I'll pass you over to Maddie. Uh, outgoing in New South Wales Teachers Federation is uh, their president, Angelo Graviolatis, who's done some amazing things for teachers in New South Wales and for public education. So I'll pass you over to Maddie. Thank you. This is entitled Gavrilados, A Profound Record of Achievement. The New South Wales Teachers Federation has paid tribute to outgoing President Angelo Gavrilados, whose term has concluded today. Gavrilados assumed the presidency of the Federation four years ago and commissioned Valuing the Teaching Profession, an independent inquiry, helmed by former WA Premier Dr Jeff Gallup, Dr Tricia Kavanagh and Patrick Lee. After conducting public hearings across New South Wales and taking expert evidence, it found unmanageable workloads, uncompetitive salaries and insecure employment had combined to create a teacher shortage crisis in New South Wales public education. This created the evidence base for a significant boost to teacher salaries to end the teacher shortage. Gavrilatis also oversaw a powerful industrial and political campaign more than thanks, that broke the wages cap. In the 18 months leading up to the state election, teachers took three separate days of strike action. They made their opposition to wage suppression a key election issue, with a presence at over 325 booths at the state election and continuous high-visibility campaigning in every corner of the state. Following the election, Gavrilatos negotiated the historic salaries deal between the Teachers' Federation and the MINS government. This increased both starting and top-of-the-scale salaries for New South Wales teachers by more than $9,000, along with major improvements across the pay scale. Angelo Gavrilatos has made a profound and tangible improvement to the teaching profession. The campaign run by the union during Angelo's presidency was essential to creating a new salary structure to end the teacher shortage, rebuild the workforce and give our kids the future they deserve, said incoming president Henry Rajendra. Angelo believes in the transformative power of the teaching profession. He has devoted his working life to defending and advancing it. 
Teachers, students and the general public are all beneficiaries of Angelo's tenacity, passion and intelligence. From tomorrow, Henry Regendra assumes the presidency of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, Amber Flome as the deputy president and Natasha Watt as the senior vice president. It is an incredible honour to serve as president of the Teachers Federation. We will strive to give public education the resources and respect it deserves, Regendra said. Back to you. So congratulations, Angelo Gavrilatis. Uh, We appreciate all your hard work up there in New South Wales for the Teachers Federation. Um, And now we'll finish off with our great news story, our great state school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is Tarnit Senior College. Uh, and now this is taken from their website. About us. Welcome to Tarnit Senior College, a, stu- a school for students in years 10 to 12. We provide our students with the opportunity to learn and work in an adult environment with high expectations for all. Students are encouraged to think, reflect and develop into successful learners so that they may take their place in society as informed, responsible and active members of the community. Our purpose? Tarnit Senior College is an environment where we collaboratively challenge and pursue learning through integrity, innovation and focus. And congratulations to the class of 2023. Tarnit Senior College students in 2023 have achieved outstanding results and a high success rate in completing their VCE and VCAL studies. Some of the highlights include 12 students achieving an ATAR above 80, 8 study scores of 40 plus, including a 47 for a student in biology, 28 study scores of 37 plus. As a school, we are very proud of the work of our Year 12 cohort, who have worked hard over the past three years at Tarnit Senior College to achieve not only this year, but over the course of the educational journey for these students, including the years affected by COVID. In addition, congratulations to all our Year 12 VCAL students for completing all course requirements and receiving offers to complete diplomas, traineeships and apprenticeships. I also want to acknowledge our graduates for the Victorian Pathway Certificate, who had a 100% completion rate. And congratulations to our Ducks for 2023, who achieved an ATAR of 88.9. And here's some of the facts and figures for the school. There's an enrolment of 1,128. And the ICSIA value is average at 1,003. That puts uh, 10% of the student population parents in the upper 25% of income, 23% in the second level, and in the third quartile, i.e. below 50%, that's 31% of parents, and in the lowest quartile, 36%. So really a school which is representative of the disadvantaged Australian community with 78% speaking a language other than English and 1% Indigenous students. Now, their finances are recurrent grants from the Australian government of $3.3 million and from the Victorian government of $12.3 million. Fees and parental contributions add another $327,000 uh, and there are no other private contributions. So that leads to $16,411 per pupil and there's a capital of $2.7 million over three years.
So congratulations, Tarnit Senior College. You are our great state school of the week. So we have been the dogs. Thank you for everyone who's contributed this week. Uh, hopefully we'll have Jean back with us again next week. But uh, until then, if you'd like to find out more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. And I'd just like to remind listeners that we are coming up to 3CR's annual subscriber drive. If you're not already a subscriber, please join in. Uh, More information on that to come. But yeah, February is 3CR's annual subscriber drive. Subscribe to Radical Radio now. But until next week, from all of us here at The Dogs, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe. Copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw your hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe. You're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.